Hi, I'm Georgina Terry. I'm the founder and CEO of Terry Precision Bicycles. Welcome to another edition of Tea Chatter. Today I'm talking to Richard Schwinn. And if you're thinking to yourself, Schwinn, Schwinn, I know I know that name. You're right, Richard Schwinn is indeed a real Schwinn. He's the great-grandson of the founder of the Schwinn Bicycle Company. In 1993, Schwinn went bankrupt, uh, but Richard purchased the factory that had built the Schwinn Paramount. You may know the Paramount is the pinnacle of cycling perfection in those days. Beautiful hand-built frames, wonderful lugs, incredible ride. Every cyclist aspired to own a Schwinn Paramount, and I was definitely one of them. Schwinn named this company Waterford Precision Cycles due to its proximity to Waterford, Wisconsin, and has continued to produce some magnificent steel frames there under the Waterford name. Uh, he also builds bikes for other people, and this year he's building for Terry Bicycles, our Isis Pro, our Isis Sport, and soon our Fast Woman, all out of steel tubing that is itself manufactured in Mississippi. So this is truly a domestic product. Now we're going to be talking about steel today, and I think a lot of you hear steel and you think, oh, passe, old school, who uses it, everything else is hot, titanium, carbon fiber, who wants steel? Boy, let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Steel is as cutting edge as any material, and I think when you get to the end of this podcast, you will have a new appreciation for steel. So sit back, listen, and enjoy. Might be interesting to have a good discussion about steel, uh, where it fits into the industry these days, past history, all that kind of stuff. Um, well, it certainly has a long history. Being actually, steel was not the first material of, of which they made bikes. I, I make kind of a uh, a point when I do a history of cycling presentation that that actually the first bikes were composite; they were made out of wood. Yeah, and and they're going back to wood with some builders these days. And they are going back to wood with some builders. So it, you know, it it uh, everything has its place. And actually, you know, before steel bikes existed, I mean, bikes were just so hard to work with because cast iron, which was the only other material available uh, beyond wood, forced you to have a bike that was you know sixty, eighty, hundred pounds mm-hmm. if it was to hold up at all. And even with bikes at those weights, it was still all the rage uh, to uh, to enjoy cycling. Although I think what they did is they 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 mostly rode indoors, and this was back in the 1860s. So, but the real revolution happened when when good quality steels came out of the market in the 1870s, and now all of a sudden all sorts of of neat things could happen. You had a hard enough material that you could build good quality hubs. You could build cranks. You could you could do things like that. Not long after that, you had chain, and and steel chain is still the the material of choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and and so on and so forth. You got to the 1930s, and that's when when they introduced the aircraft grade steels, which we call chromoly. And uh, and since then, I think few people really appreciate that steel has evolved just as much as, as every other material, and we're benefiting from that today. Yeah, it's certainly true. I mean, there's some phenomenally lightweight, strong steel, steels on the market. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've been comparing the, the weights of uh, aluminum bikes that we've produced with the steel bikes you're currently making for us now, and they're very, very close. Within ounces, it's it's really quite something. Well, there, one of the great tubing engineers of the past 50 years is a gentleman named Graham Porwood. 
And Graham, I've had a chance to chat with uh, several times over the years, and he, he keeps repeating the same point. He goes, look, when you're comparing steel to titanium to aluminum, you are trading properties. And most people look at the density of aluminum and they go, well, aluminum is a third as, as dense as steel, but it's also only a third as strong as steel. And likewise with titanium. Titanium is half the density of steel, but it's really only half the, uh, the strength. Yeah, and that's always a surprise with titanium because people think of it as being super strong, but, but it has to be alloyed with a lot of other things to achieve that. Well, and uh, isn't that, in fact, both aluminum, if you had commercially pure aluminum, and frankly, commercially pure aluminum, steel, or titanium, none of them would provide, um, would provide the kind of ride that we're looking for. And, mm -hmm. and, and we are really benefiting from highly engineered materials no matter what. Uh, what we have to look at then is the relative, uh, the relative properties that, from which we would choose uh, to get the ride qualities that we're looking for. And, uh, and with aluminum, you know, it's possible it is such a rigid material that you can create a more rigid structure at a given weight than you could with the same weight of steel. Uh, so if you want a really rigid structure, it may have an advantage. Uh, and, uh, however, you have to play with one of the weaknesses of aluminum, which is that it tends to fracture. So you have to over-design in order to compensate for that. And that's one of the reasons why you see, uh, you see such rigid aluminum structures is because it compensates for it, the, the, the Achilles heel, as, mm -hmm. as it were. Knowing that, why – I guess aluminum is not as popular as it used to be. I mean, carbon fiber is the – is the other player in all of this titanium is incredibly expensive. It, it one of the things that kind of surprises me a little bit is that people aren't using steel as much. We see them in really inexpensive bikes, we see them in more expensive bikes, but not in the middle of the line. I know from from our standpoint going to factories overseas recently and saying we like a nice steel bike, they they really don't want to build in steel. They they much rather work with carbon fiber or aluminum. And I find that kind of strange. What is driving that? It's, it's economics. What happened, you know, we, we live in an economy, we live in an economy that is a relative free-for-all. And, uh, and we are dealing with countries that, that have what we call affectionately industrial policy. And what it is is it's strategic planning applied to national economies. You know, businesses in this country perform strategic planning, but we don't really do strategic planning for economics. In uh, places like China and Taiwan and Japan, um, they perform strategic planning for their economies because they're so concerned about having high unemployment. And many years ago, the Chinese made a decision, that, and, and they continually revise these types of strategic planning decisions. But one of the decisions they made back in the in the 1980s was that they were going to become the number one aluminum producer in the world and that they would use this capability to penetrate markets that, uh, that, that may be vulnerable to this. And they looked at the U.S. market and they said, well, you could look at companies like Trek, and the Trek who was beginning to introduce aluminum bikes, and they were able to sell the same bike for more money because it was a feature that was offered. And... Uh, and they said, well, if we 
can build a low-cost aluminum frame, then we're going to go and beat the Huffies and the Murrays of the world and penetrate the U.S. market. And that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, uh, when, when we dealt with, uh, with uh, one of the large producers, and, and for a while a very successful one, Roadmaster, which had a factory in Wisconsin, they were building a very low-cost steel frame. And, and I think they were talking about a price of about $11 at the time. And, uh, that's low cost, all and right. And that's low cost, and certainly low cost compared with anything that we do. So they go, how do you do that? Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they they kind of went off in their direction, and, uh, you know, we were able to get a little window into that. Um, and and then a couple of years later, and it was 1998, the news came down. The Chinese were bringing into a, this country an aluminum frame that cost $4 out of China. And what they had done is, is they had, through their industrial policy, been able to supply to their to their Chinese factories such absolutely cheap aluminum that they could produce a frame for almost nothing. Now, I've always wondered about whether or not there are sort of hidden um, uh, trade practices. You know, they subsidize the raw material aluminum so that they can get. Um, the competitive price for a bicycle, which allows them to employ thousands of people that will stimulate the economy. So they lose a little bit on the aluminum, and they make a ton of money on, on mm-hmm. the rest of the trade. And, and you know, I've always wondered that because so many times we find that the cost of getting a material um, is higher than what you're able to buy from some of these planned economies for a complete uh, – for for the, the complete product. Mm-hmm. And uh, – the result of this cheap aluminum frame was to kill the U.S. mass-produced manufactured bike, the Huffies, Murrays, um, and, and Roadmaster factories, which were producing 8 million bikes in 1998, and they were virtually shut down by 2000. It took two years to literally kill the market, wow. and, and it had to do with the supply of aluminum. Well, what happened is, is based on that, um, countries could upgrade their aluminum um, and provide modest upgrades and sell to the middle market. And, and that's a major, uh, major component of, of why aluminum became very popular. And in many respects, the belief was is that that would simply become the standard material, regardless of whether the, the properties of the material are good, bad, or indifferent. Mm-hmm. But clearly, Aluminum became the lowest cost material from which you could build a bike, and it was literally lower cost than steel. Uh, incidentally, um, the Chinese are doing the same thing with carbon fiber. I was just going to ask you about that, because because now we see aluminum kind of in the position maybe that steel was, because carbon fiber is moving in. I've been told that aluminum bikes are just stuck to the floors of bike shops. They're not moving, but carbon fiber is. Well, and and. What's happened is uh, carbon fiber is is like anything else. It um, it it is becoming. It, although the the I believe that there was a lot of news. Let me start over again. Three years ago, you heard about the carbon fiber shortage. That there wasn't going to be any. There wasn't going to be enough carbon fiber because it was all going to go into into defense and military applications, and it was going to go into aircraft like the 787 Dreamliner from Boeing yes. and, and other things like that. And there just wasn't going to be any carbon fiber. And 
lo and behold, at virtually the same time, you are seeing carbon fiber coming uh, from Chinese factories in huge quantities. And again, I'm you know I am just suspicion uh, suspicious of of the use of of, of industrial policy, <clears throat> perhaps even with a bit of subterfuge, in order to uh, create a strong position in the middle and upper end of the marketplace, because the you know at the same time that we're hearing all this news, I'm hearing Koreans offering low-cost carbon fiber uh, base materials. And I get emails talking about uh, this all the time. Now, we don't happen to deal in the carbon fiber market ourselves, but I'm going, well, if they've got, if they have the ability to go and, and build these high-modulus carbon fiber weaves and, and, uh, and, and uh, fabrics, you know, what else do we not know about the supply of, of carbon fiber? Right, right. And, and I, I believe that that's, one of the things that uh, um, that has again has become the difference between having industrial policy working for the industry and not mm-hmm. um, in the steel world they've left steel behind steel is seen as being helpful in other applications and and uh, but there's no reason there's not enough additional value for the application steel is used for mm-hmm. to justify. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of policies that that are being justified with carbon fiber and other materials. Um, I also think that this whole carbon fiber issue plays into the uh, Chinese defense strategy, which is learn how to be very good at carbon fiber, which you will find very profitable in areas like bicycles, and then you can you now have a source of carbon fiber for other applications, uh, other industrial applications, such as uh, uh, military applications and a wealth of other products that are not military in nature. Talk a little bit about from from the cyclist point of view, uh, the the woman who comes to me and and uh, who is torn between uh, titanium, steel, carbon fiber. Not sure which direction she should go in. Um, I always like to make a strong case. I think for steel, I I, I still. I know carbon fiber is phenomenally strong. It has some excellent properties when used in a bicycle. But there's still that longevity aspect that's always lurking in the back of my mind that, that concerns me very much about that. Um, maybe I'm just being old-fashioned. I'm not sure. What are well, your takes on that? Well, only time will tell how long the composite structures will last. You know, from a, a strictly fatigue standpoint, they have excellent properties. That is to say, if you if you're able to provide a, a controlled stress on on a structure, you know you you apply right. 100 pounds of force on the top of a frame and you repeat the cycle x number of times, um, then then you may, will get a very very long life. Uh, and and if that's the only kind of stress you're going to put on it from a structural standpoint, you know it's a very powerful uh, it, there's a very powerful incentive. Um, there are there are certainly strengths to carbon fiber and there are weaknesses to carbon fiber and there are unknowns with carbon fiber. The strengths are clearly the strength to weight ratio is very very high and that is a tremendous uh, that's that's its real calling card. Um, the second strength and it's one that's that that bike manufacturers appreciate is it offers tremendous styling opportunities without a great 
weight penalty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what you're seeing is a lot of big tube bikes, funny-shaped bikes, uh, bikes that really have nicely sculpted lines. And I think that is as much a competitive battlefield as the actual technical properties mm-hmm. of the bike. The, the weaknesses are an inflexible production at this point. Uh, there is little ability to customize a carbon fiber bike, and the carbon fiber bikes that are customized are very, very costly, and, and, and they give up the styling opportunities that you have with, with, a, uh, uh, with, with a molded frame. Yes, they definitely do. And so what you have is a carbon fiber bike that basically works like, like a steel bike or a titanium bike where you're essentially cutting tubes and expanding and contracting to fit. Um, so one of the weaknesses is if you want the, the visual look, and, and I suspect some of the, uh, the weight-saving properties of, of carbon fiber, you're going to give up that customizability. Mm-hmm. Um, the another Achilles heel is what happens in the case of a crash, and and at least when you really get down to the 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 super light versions of carbon fiber, which is really kind of the fundamental reason why people are interested in it. Uh, once you get down to the really low weights, it becomes fragile, and it becomes fragile uh, more rapidly and more catastrophically than let's say steel or titanium. Do we worry too much about weight? <laughs> well, that's a good question. <clears throat> I think the average person does. Um, and in the cycling sense. <laughs> in the cycling sense. And one of the reasons, in one of the uh, one of the great statistics that I learned, and and you know, as you know, my background is a Schwinn bicycle company, and Schwinn sure. was known for its very heavy bikes. And uh, I have a Schwinn sitting in my office right now. One of my first very nice bicycles. And and um, the. Um, what Schwinn did was a study with Cornell University in the 1970s as oh, to the really? impact of weight on <clears throat> on, uh, on speed. And, and what they found was that in order to reduce your speed over a range of riding conditions, you would have to add 12 pounds to the weight of a bike in order to affect its speed by one mile per hour. Now, we live in a world of, of you know, three to four pound bike frames. Mm-hmm. And, and we're doing uh, we're doing bike frames in those weights today in steel. Uh, the Schwinn Varsity was incidentally a 12 pound frame, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was a real monster. It was really designed for kids to be totally bulletproof, and you couldn't destroy it, and they didn't. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I have to tell you a funny story. Let me interrupt. Sure. I think the Continental was very much like the, the Varsity, exactly, in terms of weight. And and a friend and I, when we used to live in Pittsburgh. Uh, went out one day, and she was on her brand-new Continental, and darned if she didn't get hit by a car. Uh, luckily, she was fine, but but the bike, you know, took quite a hit and rolled off down the road, and we all went after it. The bike was in perfect condition. The only thing that had happened was it threw its chain. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's a testament to the Continental and the Varsity. And 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 both of those, and they, they certainly have had very long lives, and, and even if you did... Um, if you did manage to bend a tube, you could pretty much bend it back. You might have a kink in there, but mm-hmm. you'd have to work pretty hard to destroy one of those bikes, and mm-hmm. that's what it was designed for. It was also designed to compete with the Huffies and the Murrays of the world. It wasn't really designed to compete with, you know, 
a Raleigh or a Bianchi or sure. you know any of those bikes. And sure. Schwinn had bikes for for doing that, but um, just the same, you know, Schwinn was so associated with these really heavy, low cost, super low cost bikes that uh, it, you know there was definitely a a psychology of uh, uh, that that they wanted to respond to, and uh, and you know this statistic was very interesting. Now, you know, twelve pounds is a lot of weight. Uh, and a mile per hour in a bike race is a long time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're riding a, a four-hour race, that means you're four hours behind, and if you're riding, let's say, uh, let's just pick a number 30 miles per hour, that means you're going to be eight miles, <laughs> you're going to be eight minutes behind. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, not a trivial piece. When you start to get down to uh, half a pound, now all of a sudden, you know, you're you're only talking, you're counting in yards. And then the question is, are there other factors that offer an advantage to steel that overwhelm this this half pound? Uh, and let's even say a pound deficit. And a one pound deficit is one twelfth of a mile per hour. Well, you know, yes, there are mitigating factors. The first one being fit. And and you know, someone like Lance Armstrong is very fortunate because he has an absolutely average fit. He fits a stock 56-centimeter Waterford or Trek or Cannondale or Specialized. He is at the very top of the bell curve of fit. But if he wasn't, he might be at a real disadvantage in using a stock geometry bike. Mm-hmm. And the fact is is that, that most uh, people do have certain deviations, some of which can be addressed with with stem and bar position, and sometimes you just have to change the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, women, in particular, have suffered because, in dealing with large-scale markets like uh, uh, like like uh, bikes, um, historically in the upper end, women have only represented 15% of the purchasers of of high-end bikes, and so manufacturers have said, "Well, we want the fat middle," especially when you have a a product like composites, where where mass production and economies of scale are so important, and so what's happened is is most of the bikes are really designed for the Lance Armstrongs of the world, and not, you know, the 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 proportions uh, that that women have statistically. Now, yes, there are women that work just great with with uh, male proportions, but uh, there's a whole group of women who've 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 really been neglected. That's, that's where, why we're here, <laughs> and that's why you're here, and and that's one of the areas where uh, steel and and any material that you can cut and weld and and work in low in in relatively low quantities uh, becomes more advantageous. But that's not all. Um, the uh, another area that's really important is ride quality. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the things that that is happening now is that they're super lightweight composite frames, and these are the frames that you're sitting and going, how do they make it that light? And uh, But we're also finding that they are, they're not having the kind of ride qualities of, of a more solid composite bike. Um, if you go back and you take a look at some of the classic bikes, like the, the Kestrel 4000, which was one of the pioneers, you know, that was a three-pound frame. But it was it had uh, much better ride qualities than some of the bikes that you see today mm-hmm. um, that that really uh, um, that that will survive that they'll have an unbelievable fatigue life, but they don't actually even offer the kind of pedaling efficiency that can come up from a steel.
one of the advantages of steel is the fact that it is, in fact, a spring. It's a springy material. It will bounce back, which yes. means that yeah. it will reinforce um, your pedal stroke in, in both directions. And mm -hmm. it happens at, at, at a scale that is not, you know, it, you can only see it in, in the flexing of, of, of the material, but that flexing and the springiness of it actually, I think, provides a reinforcement and, in fact, provides that ride feel that, that makes people feel like they've got more power with a steel bike than they have with other materials. Mm -hmm. And that's because steel does not have the damping properties that composites and aluminum have. Now, that leads me to a whole other rant, if you'll give me just a moment. No, this is great. Keep going. And that rant is the difference between shock absorption and shock damping. Okay. The average consumer confuses these two. They hear claims by by manufacturers, particularly of carbon fiber bikes, that carbon fiber has superior shock damping properties. And you know what? I'll hand it to them. It does. And it's one of the reasons why we like that, that on high-performance bikes, we don't mind mixing composite forks with steel frames because the shock damping properties uh, balance out uh, the, the possibility that a super light steel structure will flex too much. Mm -hmm. And the flexing is not the, the, the torsional rigidity. It's the oscillations that can occur in a steel frame um, that are not damped. And we hear of a phenomenon called high-speed wobble, and sure. high-speed wobble can occur um, at, at uh, higher weights in a steel frame because of steel's flexibility. So, you know, when I started out, I said we trade properties. One of those properties is that flex and bounce back property of steel, which can be a really useful tool, but when you have too much of it, you can get control problems. So mm -hmm. when we design a frame, we design it so there's enough material to, to keep that to make it appropriate for the application, and and we balance it with the composites. Well, to continue on, that that shock damping is different than shock absorption, and a lot of people believe and mix these two concepts up, and they think that if you've got a damped structure, that that is in fact going to reduce, that's going to absorb shock, mm -hmm. and that's simply not true. In fact, in many cases, um, the carbon fiber structures are actually more rigid and they transmit more of the, of the road noise to uh, the, the amplitude to the rider. Mm -hmm. and, and, that's, and what it, what it does, though, is it is not going to have the, the oscillation properties that you would have with other materials. Interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think too many people think they just hear shock will go away, <laughs> and and they don't quite get into it in that detail. That's really that's quite fascinating. You know, along those lines, you'd also mentioned the study that Cornell did for Schwinn uh, some years ago. Tell me if I'm just not having a good memory here or not. But back in the late 1980s, when I first started my business and we were building with steel. Uh, we were doing a lot with uh, Columbus and with Reynolds. Ishiwata and Tange were entering the market as strong players from Japan. And along came True Temper about that time, also coming into the steel market. And there used to be, I don't know if it's a myth about steel or not. The myth was 
that the really good bike racers, the European pros, would hang their frames up after a year because they went kind of soft and noodly. And uh, there was just something about steel that, after so many fatigue cycles or whatever, it just didn't feel the same. It turned into a wet noodle. Yes, the Viagra effect. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And True Temper said, you know what, we don't think that's true, and we're going to take bicycle frames that riders have ridden the daylights out of for a year, and we're going to test them. Mm -hmm. Did they ever do that? Was there ever a result from that test? I never heard any more about it, but they were bound and determined to, to make that case. Does that ring a bell with you, or am I just I don't crazy? know of any studies, but I can tell you that, that any engineer is going to tell you that the fatigue properties, any that, that when steel fatigues, the first thing it does is become more rigid. Mm-hmm. Right, that's true. And it the does bending paper clip softer. routine. Uh, so I think that there's a couple things that are going on here. One is that bike racers believe they should have a new bike all the time. <laughs> And and if I was a bike racer and I was making a lot of money, I'd want to have a new bike. You and and this is especially important if you are getting a ride sponsorship and you are going to change sponsors on a on a frequent basis. So I think that there's a certain psychology that that works on that that basis. And besides, when you're done with that bike, if you're low level enough, you've got something to sell. Right now, now if if bike manufacturers never sponsored bike racers, I think you'd almost find the opposite. You would find bike frames that would become good luck charms. And no matter what, they would use this frame. But mm-hmm. it plays, it, it just doesn't play into, you know, the, 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 the rest of the bike racer's life. Um, I actually think that, <clears throat> that a lot of people who report this and 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 many people do do so for a different reason and and uh, they do genuinely detect uh, a softening of the frame but I think it's having to do with something else and that has to do with their own strength oftentimes I've asked people I said well you know you've had this bike for five years and now it's gone soft on you and and I said, how much were you riding five years ago? And they go, you know, I mean, how many miles a year? They go, a thousand miles. And you become a bike racer since then. Oh yeah, man, I've got great. I train. I do this. That. I'm riding four or five thousand miles a year. I've got my license. I've upgraded. I've done this, that, and the other. They go, you know, the bike has not gotten softer. You have gotten harder. Mm-hmm. 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 And and I think that mm-hmm. that is really, in many cases, what's going on. And Interestingly enough, if you take a look at, at Lightspeed, um, what Lightspeed has done um, through the years, and, and uh, if you went back, and I'm going back a couple of years, I haven't analyzed uh, their, their product line recently, but um, their entry-level product, the Lightspeed Classic, was actually lighter in weight than their full race bike, which was the, uh, what is it, Lightspeed Ultimate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that what bike racers really need in order to succeed is they need to have enough stiffness, particularly for sprints and and uh, uh, for leadouts and uh, all sorts of maneuvering within a peloton, let alone um, let alone time trialing. And what less sophisticated riders are more concerned about is weight. And the first thing they'll do is they'll figure out how much does this weigh, and that is going to be a surrogate for all the other properties, all the other 
uh, indicators of quality. Mm-hmm. And certainly Waterford, you know, we try to build the lightest frame that we can, but we build the lightest frame that we can that achieves all the other properties we want to achieve in the frame. And mm-hmm. and uh, I think what what uh, what real professionals really want is they want something that's going to hold up that they could ride with confidence, mm-hmm. and that uh, the rest of it follows on from it. And uh, so anyway, uh, you may be finding riders who are getting that super light bike, but now realizing that they need something that's going to be a little stiffer. But for all practical purposes, a steel frame is going to outlast uh, is going to outlast us in in our ability to ride it. Yeah, which is a, a shame, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's good and bad, I guess. Well, it's yeah, it's a mixed blessing for those of us who are manufacturers. But yeah. you know, yeah. there's enough there are enough twists and turns in the bike industry, and and bike design and and riding qualities. It's uh, that uh, it'll keep us busy. You know, at Waterford, and and I think you, you're an example of someone who's been an innovator in your own way. But one of the one of the things observations that 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 I make about Waterford and what we do with our bikes is, you know, we build with a material that a lot of people look at as being relatively conservative. And I can tell you right now, steels have evolved, and steels the steels we ride today are are fundamentally better than the steels we rode with with ten or 20 or 30 years ago. But one of the things that really makes Waterford an innovator is that we've introduced different styles of bikes mm-hmm. and that we have rethought the function of the bike and that the ease of manufacturing with steel has given us the opportunity to focus more on function, whereas in, with, with uh, a lot of the new materials, what they spend most of their time doing is trying to build a bike that's already been built but to use a better material, what they what they claim to be a better material to build it with, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you'll see uh, with the most advanced designs, uh, the most advanced materials, you'll see actually the most traditional designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's neat that that steel gives you that flexibility to say the material is not going to hold me back. I can just go forth, figure out what the right bike is for this situation, and know that I can build it. Exactly. And and that's phenomenal. Is it? Is there ever going to be any problem getting steel? Well, I mean, be- you know because- that's an interesting that's an interesting yeah. um, question, and there is always the the risk that that it becomes so exceptional that that people will not get into the business. I don't see that happening in the short term. We may see some of the players change, but um, you know there's enough there's enough popularity to steel enough interest and a willingness to pay enough money for it that uh, that I think there'll they'll be people who are willing to supply it. Um, it is not going to, you know, we're depending on the, the, the steels that, you know, you can't get appropriate bicycle tubing to build a Schwinn Varsity anymore sure. at a price yeah. that would be reasonable. You'd have to buy it in, in huge quantities. Um, but... Uh, but I do believe that that uh, that getting steels uh, will continue to be uh, relatively straightforward. One of the advantages of the air hardening steels, and these are the steels that you're using in in uh, in, in your Waterford built Terry's, yeah. is that the alloy that's used there is used in the automobile industry for crash panels. Hmm. And crash panels have been a very they've allowed 
uh, automobile manufacturers to build relatively lightweight cars with phenomenal crash-resistant properties. And uh, so as long as the auto industry is getting the alloys, it's not going to be that hard for people like Reynolds and True Temper and uh, their Italian counterparts and Tange and people like that to siphon off quantities of these alloys, make modest modifications to it, and then shape it for, uh, for bike tubing. So are, I don't see it going away anytime soon. Are these steels, um, do they start off life as flat sheets that are rolled and then welded along a seam? or are the... Some steels do and some steels don't. Um, mm-hmm. But True Temper actually made their reputation by being probably the world masters at uh, what is known as welded redrawn tubing. And that's tubing that starts off at a flat, as flat stock and is rolled and welded. And, uh, and we have used quite a bit of that tubing in various applications, and it's held up remarkably well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, both True Temper and Reynolds, uh, with their most advanced steels, have gone to seamless tubing, mm-hmm. uh, where they start off with essentially a blank that, that uh, looks like basically just a lump you know, a cylinder of yeah. of the alloy, and then they pound it and pound it and pound it and pound it and shape it and manipulate it until finally it becomes the tubing that we use in a bike. And uh, all of our advanced tubing, including all the tubing uh, that that we use in your bikes, is now made with seamless tubing, at least at least the main tubes. And is- that's been uh, uh, so. Uh, which one is better? It's it's hard to say. Um, I, I suppose um, my preference is probably still for a seamless tube, mm-hmm. but it, it all depends. The more advanced tubes, the original air hardening tubes, they didn't have blanks available, and they didn't really have processes for manipulating it uh, into tubing. And so uh, the AirMet tubing, for example, which is the pioneering air hardening steel, uh, was started as, as a strip stock. and. And I suspect it's like a lot of things, uh, that it, when you deal with the new materials, you have to make compromising, it compromises in your manufacturing process. And then as it matures, you go to, uh, you go to, to, uh, to structures that, uh, um, that may be slightly more favorable, and those are some of the refinements uh, as to what's going on. Where is True Temper making this steel? They make it down in, in Amory, Mississippi. So this is truly a U.S. product. It's here. a U.S. product, and we're really we're proud of uh, the quality wow. that they have have uh, put into the materials. That, I mean, they're they're achieving uh, uh, incredible tolerances. Um, you know, the the tolerances in the materials we're using in the ISIS series is is uh, uh, is is really at a level that that was not possible 20 or 30 years ago for many manufacturers, including, you know, uh, excellent quality manufacturers like Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, it's getting uh, it's getting even better today. Uh, we're also, um, uh, you know, we use a, a, another even more advanced material in our uh, top-of-the-line race bikes, uh, True Temper's S3 tube set, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, even thinner wall that, that no one could have even dreamed of before. What, what is the wall thickness? Uh, the wall thicknesses are below. They are uh, they are at at a point four millimeters. Wow. Okay. Uh, which is uh, really impressive, 
And and I think the competition is going to continue. Um, the, you know, Reynolds has reduced introduced their their Reynolds nine five three. Yes. And uh, they're at at a point three five wall, which would have been considered insane. But the properties of this these tubing is, I mean, like I say, uh, no one could have point uh, three five wall even in an air hardening steel with a seamless tubing was was simply not feasible uh, years ago. And now we're seeing it. Uh, uh, we're seeing Reynolds uh, pioneering this stuff uh, today, and with very impressive results. Wow! Is is the bicycle industry pushing them to develop that tubing? Is that what's making it, or other industries using it? And the bicycle industry is just benefiting from this. Well, in in the case in of the nine five three, the bicycle people are actually the pioneers. Yeah, oh, they're driving and, it. Great. And um, and and it it's it's a harder road. Um, than they've had in some other areas. Um, and I, I suspect we're going to see bicycle tubing filter into other areas. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people don't appreciate, uh, if you're a structural engineer, you can appreciate how how remarkable the bike frame is. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, we talk about aerospace materials and, and aerospace this and aerospace that, and that's the buzzword. But the aerospace people know that the the most difficult and most demanding mechanical structure in industry today is a bicycle. With an aircraft, with an airframe that's used for the most advanced airplanes around, they have to build and double, triple, and and quadruple over-engineer the material to make sure that it's absolutely fail-safe. But the dynamics of our industry, it's so demanding in terms of weight savings and and other factors that we really take materials much closer to their mechanical limits than than the aircraft industry does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for example, the Kestrel 4000 was at the time the most advanced um, application of carbon fiber in in the entire world. And it was so advanced that the United States would not allow um, uh, Kestrel to export uh, the tooling and the processes to build carbon fiber bicycles in Asia. Wow. I didn't realize that. And uh, and and that was that was and and that was really an example of it. But you know, the uh, the uh, the use of heat treated tubing which started happening in the 1970s was one of the first applications in this very demanding structure and it started filtering into uh, other industries and and uh, I think 953 uh, we're certainly hopeful that other industries are going to recognize just what a remarkable material that is uh, because right now you know if it is uh, we pay a tremendous cost because there's so little of it available and, yeah. and uh, uh, Reynolds is literally going it alone on it, and I think it will. Uh, I think it it has tremendous um, applications. It's it's going to provide a far more environmentally friendly material than titanium, but with uh, with superior properties. Now, now that's something interesting. How is it more environmentally friendly? You know, you think of steel being made, you immediately see clouds of smoke in Pittsburgh in the 1930s with lights on in the middle of the day. Absolutely, and <laughs> uh, uh, but but the uh, 
they, there are two issues that go on. First of all, the amount of energy utilization that is required to make steel is far lower than it is to build either aluminum or, uh, or titanium. Uh, the, aluminum is, is uh, and, and all three of these materials, by the way, if you, if you took the, the earth by weight, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, iron, uh, iron and nickel would be number one, mm-hmm. but, uh, but uh, aluminum would be number two, and titanium would be probably six or seven. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but in order to process aluminum, you have to, you have to, you require enormous amounts of electricity. Uh, most of the cost of aluminum is electricity. It's not the actual aluminum itself. Mm-hmm. And with titanium, it's the same thing. You have, uh, you have tremendous uh, power requirements to create uh, a titanium tubing. What's more is titanium, in order to extract the alloy, you have to use really noxious chemicals mm-hmm. that aren't required in the creation of, of steel. So those are two reasons why it is a, a more environmentally friendly uh, material. Uh, is it more environmentally friendly than carbon fiber? Well, I haven't studied it, so mm-hmm. I'm going to do something that's really unnatural for me. I'm going to say I really don't know. <laughs> You're honest, and that's good. <laughs> um, I don't. I suspect that uh, that. That you're dealing with a lot of polymers and chemicals and yeah, things that's like what that. I would so, think. I mean, it's a different you, kind you know, of your petrochemicals and and things like that. Yeah, and yeah. you know, like so many things, it is possible to take something that has a lot of environmentally unfriendly properties, maybe make it more friendly. Uh, chrome plating is an example. Um, mm. In in the old days, mm-hmm. uh, chrome plating was environmentally very unfriendly. You had nasty chemicals. And, oh yeah. And uh, chromium is not uh, is not an environmentally friendly chemical. Uh, today, chrome plating is uh, is is actually uh, they're so good at extracting the, the chromium out of there that uh, in fact we talked to a chrome plater not long ago that said uh, our recyclers actually like us to leave more chromium than we need to leave in it because then they can get some they can get more cash out of it. Oh, that's in, interesting. In, in the recycling market now, there are other problems with chrome plating that that. Uh, make me glad that we use it very sparingly today. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, and most of it is have, has to do with weight. You're taking uh, oh yeah uh, a chrome plated uh, a chrome plated structure. You're adding uh, some of the most dense metals. Yes. With no structural benefits <laughs> to it for, as a finishing mm-hmm. benefit. And paint is paint is certainly a lot lower uh, weight than chrome. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. There's a lot to think about in here, and I think a lot of good information probably that people haven't considered from this point of view necessarily. Uh, and and it's it's always good to wave the flag for steel because it is an amazing, amazing material, and hopefully it will be with us for a long time. It, it is amazing material. I'll make one other comment. Yeah. It is possible to build a good bicycle out of many different materials, and and it is possible to build a good bike out of aluminum possible to build a good bike out of of, uh, of carbon fiber um, and of titanium. I think what happens, though, is in the chase for weight, there is a tendency to compromise the other properties. And, and this is done so much with the other materials because that's their calling card. If they don't weigh, uh, if they don't weigh less, why waste the time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, with steel, because you know we've been sort of the ugly stepchild material, 
you know, people have said, well, you know, I'm buying a steel frame. I don't need to worry about weight as much. I'm not the kind of person that worries about weight. I'll choose the steel because of its long-term value. And because of that, we've been able to focus our efforts on designing more for real functionality, and functionality being pedaling efficiency, um, uh, high stability, um, and all sorts of other properties that really, when you think about it as a rider, are really far more important. Well, I I can certainly relate to that because I hear from so many customers who say, Look, you know, I only weigh 130 pounds. My boyfriend weighs 180. Our bikes weigh the same. I'm clearly at a deficit, and and it's tough sometimes to to convince people that that's not necessarily the case. But 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 what you've said really fits in well. You know, now you can concentrate. Wouldn't a bike that fits you better compensate sometimes for some of that? And and in the end, the weight at that point really doesn't make that much of a difference. Today, you should be we, concentrating on a lot of other things, not not a couple of ounces here or there. Well, we can build complete bicycles that that weigh under 15 pounds, mm-hmm. which makes you can't the, get away with that with. Uh, and that's <laughs> racing, now illegal. Yeah, exactly. That's considered cheating. Exactly. And and so you know we can we can give you as light a frame as you need to have. The beauty of it is that we can build you a frame that has far fewer trade-offs mm-hmm. uh, to get there. And that's why we find a number of people who call us up and they go, uh, I, I found my steel, I found my old steel bike, and I you know, I bought an aluminum bike, and I bought a tie bike, and I bought a carbon fiber bike, and I hop back on my old steel bike, and you know what? <laughs> I couldn't stop giggling with green. <laughs> Uh-huh. So I call it the oh, giggles yeah. phenomenon, and <laughs> it's infecting more and more people. And I and I think uh, one of the interesting one of the interesting phenomena today is uh, is that that steel happens to be enjoying real growth as a material in the high end. It's n- never going to come back in the low end for yeah. The, yeah. the real fundamental economic reasons. But right. in the high end, we're going to see it uh, reemerge and um, and. And the reason is that that people are looking at their bikes more as investments. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, I think I think the psychology that existed here, particularly at the start of the uh, Iraq War, was that we can overcome everything with technology, and the technology um, trumps many other um, values in in our products. I think today we're seeing that shift to long-term value, and I think that's where our bikes absolutely play into things. I still have a couple of beautiful steel frames um, that I ride from time to time, in addition to to my current Isis Pro, and they're really very special. They just never grow old. They're wonderful, wonderful things. Well, and, uh, the one other, I think one other point that that bears mentioning is the whole issue of corrosion. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to have mm-hmm. a conversation about steel, we need to have a conversation about that aspect of it. You're right. And, You're right. and um, I'd make a couple of comments on, on the whole issue. One is that, you know, all frames are subject to greater corrosion than, than they have been in the past because high-end riders are riding more than they used to. And there are more high-end riders. Uh, if you go back 30 years ago, uh, us, you know, there are probably less than a million people that rode over 
uh, a thousand miles a year mm-hmm. in this country. Today, it's probably more like six to seven million people who are riding at that level, and that's really a uh, that's a beautiful thing. Um, steel does require a certain level of care that maybe titanium might not, um, but I, I think that uh, that uh, is the the level of care that's required is fairly minimal. Um, in our case, we recommend uh, one to two wax jobs a year, and our rule of thumb is as long as the water is beating up on the bike, your finish is safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and today there are internal rust protectants that, that uh, we recommend, uh, and they're basically a spray wax. And you know, it, the, the Name temp- a couple in case people Well, why, uh, J.P. Weigel's Frame Saver yep. is, is the most notable brand, and, yep. uh, and uh, it's well used. Um, if you go to the motorcycle industry, um, there's a number of brands that are out there that uh, that they use and uh, that are also functional. But uh, and how uh, should applic- these be applied? Uh, I'm sorry. How should they be applied? Well, they uh, JP Weigel's is quite convenient. It they it, it comes in a in a in a spray bottle and uh, with a nozzle, and you can stick it in the frames. We've designed our frames to make it easy to uh, to 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 apply a frame saver. Um, our philosophy is we put a lot of holes in our bikes, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. we do so because we like them to be able to drain. Yeah. And yep. so our bikes are holier than almost any bike out there. Which means that our ISIS is holier as well, right? And uh, absolutely, we we <laughs> we put extra holes in there. And the reason for having the holes is that you want to keep uh, you want moisture to have a chance to get out of them. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, but uh, the application of frame saver helps a lot in that and. Uh, and if you take modest care of it, you won't have a problem. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is that aluminum, and especially the high-performance aluminums that we see today, actually corrode faster than steel. They just don't mm-hmm. rust. I think a lot of people think aluminum doesn't even rust. <laughs> and they don't even think it rusts. But if you take a look at your old, uh, uh, you know, your old uh, aluminum door and you see that white stuff around yeah. there, yeah. it over your shower, um, you're seeing an example of corrosion. Yeah. Uh, likewise, with uh, with composites, um, you know there is there is um, there is a nagging concern about what happens with the long term interaction with uh, uh, the various uh, acids and um, uh, composition of our air today, and mm-hmm. what will happen if uh, to the long term properties of of uh, carbon fiber and. I think that we may find uh, that that carbon fiber does something that its its organic uh, uh, equivalent wood does, which is rot. Mm-hmm. And and, and uh, with titanium, the big problem is that titanium doesn't react well to other materials, and it tends to want to weld to them. Yeah, like aluminum. <laughs> like aluminum, uh, and like steel, and like even carbon fiber, stuck uh-huh. carbon fiber seat posts. So uh-huh. now all of these problems. Um, mean that you have to take care of your bike. Yeah, no matter what. Uh, it is. If you have an aluminum bike, you need to keep it waxed. Actually, frame saver would be a good a, a good idea. Um, mm-hmm. uh, with composites, um, you should keep your carbon fiber frame waxed because that does provide additional structural protection. Uh, and the same thing it applies with with titanium. You don't need to wax it. Although, to be honest, uh, so many people are 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 painting their titanium frames today that I would say if you want your paint job to hold up, keep it waxed. Yeah. And yeah. so if you've got nice toys, you're going to put the same amount of work into them to keep them looking new that you would with a steel frame. So wax your bike, it'll last longer than you. 
<laughs> I'm the kind of person who usually cleans the bike before I clean myself, so I definitely subscribe to that. Exactly, and <laughs> and you know, really today the big problem is sports drinks. Oh, ho, ho. and yeah. it's yeah. blood and sports drinks that are the enemy. Uh, once and, and once you wax a frame, my recommendation is hose it off with water. Water's your friend to a well-waxed frame. Yeah, you know, the sport drinks are something. They they kind of dribble down the down tube and work their way towards the bottom bracket. They gunk up everything. It's just annoying as anything. And and stuff, you know, remember, I, and I don't know if it's still popular in the tri-circles, but for a long time they would take, like, power bar and, oh, and, and, yeah. and stick it <laughs> to the top of the frame. Well, you know, uh, power bar yeah. is really good for, you know, it's good for certain things. But the sugars and acids that are just part of it play hell on a finish. So, uh, you know, a little carnauba wax in your diet probably isn't uh, isn't the worst thing in the world. Uh, put a little gleam to that lower intestinal tract. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> time I for think, breakfast here. Yeah, time for breakfast. I think we should probably wrap this up. Richard Schwinn, thank you very much. This has been a great hour, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and it's it's a pleasure working with you, and I really appreciate all the work you've done uh, for cycling in general, for women's cycling specifically, but um, we've, uh, we really feel privileged to be able to work with you. Well, the feeling is mutual. Thank you very much. We'll, and we'll talk to you another time, maybe. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye.